0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of Yahweh, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed Yahweh's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen! Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, Let there be no dew or rain upon you, Nor fields of offerings, For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, From the fat of the mighty, The bow of Jonathan turned not back, And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. We're back, we're back, we're back for episode 751 of this podcast. Welcome back. It is Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. Also election day. If you are in this part of the world, if you're in this part of the globe in the US, November 7th, 2023, it's time to vote, but mostly for local things. In our neck of the woods, we've got school board races and city council and the mayor and a couple of Greeley city initiatives, a couple of statewide ballot initiatives. I've talked about those enough. I'm not going to talk about them anymore in this episode. We'll see how the election goes and then I'll talk with you about it again after the election is over. But if you want to go back, a few episodes, I did actually two, part one and part two, How I'm Voting in Greeley, Colorado. Those are from October 29th and 31st, episodes 744 and 45, respectively, if you want to check them out. But for now, for this episode, we're going to be talking about Second Samuel. Second Samuel, chapter 1, David hears about the death of Saul and Jonathan. Before we get into that, there's a little introduction piece, a short paragraph on Logos.com. I'll read that for you. The introduction to Second Samuel. Second Samuel recounts David's reign as king of Israel about 1010 to 970 B.C., As promised to Abraham during David's reign, Israel's borders were extended roughly from Egypt to the Euphrates. While David had many successes, after his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, chapter 11, both his kingdom and his own family fell into chaos. His son Absalom led a bloody rebellion against him. Nevertheless, David, author of many of the Psalms, was a man after God's own heart, Acts 13.22 a model of deep, heartfelt prayer and repentance. The Davidic covenant of chapter seven establishes the eternal rule of David's line with its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ, the author of Second Samuel is unknown. That leads me to ask a question I don't know the answer to, which is why do we call it 2 Samuel if we don't know who the author was? Clearly in 1 Samuel The author has passed away partway through the book. Before the book is over, Samuel is dead, and the book continues. So somebody was writing after the death of Samuel. Maybe we call it First and Second Samuel because this is the legacy of Samuel. I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to that question. If I find an answer, I'll bring it back to you. If you know the answer, please let me know because I... I'm genuinely curious how did we come up with 1st and 2nd Samuel as names for these two books. Nevertheless, 1010 to 970 BC is when David is believed to have ruled and reigned as king of Israel. And before we get into David being king, he's a guy who is well-known. He is a man who is thought of as who you would take this news to. And that's significant. He's known, his quality is known by this Amalekite sojourner. And whether the Amalekite is telling the truth, by the way, that's in question as well. He says that he saw and he killed Saul. He gave him a mercy killing. He finished him quickly and cleanly before the Philistines could get to him. He says that. Is it true? First Samuel seemed to indicate that Saul fell on his sword and that was how he died, not that anybody finished him off. It could be that he fell on his sword and he died, and there's a little bit in between there where he fell on his sword, and this guy was close by and delivered the finishing blow. I don't know. I'm not sure. Either way, this guy is willing to claim such and expects to be rewarded for it. He is certainly not expecting to be punished. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. But one might suppose if you're not familiar with David and how David has conducted himself when he had the opportunity to kill Saul himself, you might suppose that, hey, this guy's next in line and he's going to be happy to get this news. Saul was such a problem. Saul was always pursuing after him and wanted to kill David unjustly, killed a lot of other people trying to get at David, neglected his duties, turned the kingdom upside down in a foolish campaign against the man who was going to be king after Saul. You might expect, if you are the Amalekite, that this is happy news. It's good news. You're not being chased by Saul anymore. Saul's dead. And you've been hanging out with the Philistines, and now the Philistines have just won this battle against Saul, who was this big problem for you. Isn't that good news? Aren't you going to be glad? David is very upset. He mourns the death of not just his friend, Jonathan, that you would understand he would be upset about, as close as Jonathan and David were. Loving the other person as your own soul, that's a very close Kind of love. Best of friends, kind of love. Mourning Jonathan makes sense. Also, Jonathan was well known in Israel. Jonathan almost himself was put to death by his father after having charged the Philistine garrison, just himself and his armor bearer, because they called us up. Now we know that the Lord has given them into our hand. That started the chaos. On the Philistine side. And then the rest of the army of Israel that had been hiding in the hills came down and joined the battle. And nevertheless, Saul, because God wasn't answering Saul, Saul was ready to kill Jonathan because he had eaten a little bit of honey that he dipped his spear in. Crazy stuff. It sounds crazy, right? Because it is crazy. It's not good. (laughs) Saul was not being a good king or a good father to say the least, in that moment. But the men of Israel said, absolutely not, by no means. You're not going to harm a hair on his head. God has just worked with Jonathan. Jonathan has just worked with God this day to defeat our enemies. He will surely not die. Jonathan being mourned, that makes sense. But Saul? David mourns for Saul? Yes. As a matter of fact, he does. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places how the mighty have fallen tell it not in gath publish it not in the streets of ashkelon lest the daughters of the philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt so in other words not just jonathan verse 23 in case it wasn't clear enough saul and jonathan beloved and lovely in life and in death they were not divided they were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen. Now, I've been highlighting the warning that Samuel gives when he gives Israel a king. God says, obey the voice of the people, give them a king. Only Warn them very carefully what will happen because they have a king now. Then give them a king. I've been emphasizing how the very best of everything, the best young men, the best young women, the best older men, would all alike be at the disposal of the king of Israel. He would just take them and put them to service where it seemed best to him. I've been emphasizing how Samuel, per God, warned Israel that a king would take the best of their fields, the best of their vineyards. Here, David is delivering a eulogy for Saul and for Jonathan and says, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, you daughters of Israel, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. This would seem to me to be in reference to general economic conditions that benefit the women that benefit domesticity. If a woman has the wherewithal to be clothed in scarlet, that is to say, she is clothed in clothes that have been dyed with scarlet dye, which is to say they're doing well. They have disposable income. They have money to spare if they can pay for clothes that have been dyed in scarlet. But then what's more, putting ornaments of gold on your apparel. That's disposable income. That's to say that the economy is doing well. That's to say that it wasn't just Saul doing the unjust, crazy things, going after David, killing Ahimelech and the priests and all the women and children and men of Nob. He also did some good things for the economy. Besides that, David commends the martial prowess, the physical fitness, the skill in battle, the strength, the speed of both Saul and Jonathan. They were good fighters. Remember the song that provoked Saul in the first place? Saul has slain his thousands, David his 10,000s. If not for David being credited with 10,000s, Saul slaying thousands would still be Pretty impressive. I mean, it's a figure of speech, but all the same, it's no joke. It's not something to just scoff at. And David, even having gotten more praise, and I'm sure he's thought about that long and hard, whether it really was so good to have been praised. Beware when all men speak well of you, we read in another place. Beware when all the women sing songs about you. But here he is, he's mourning. Saul and Jonathan, and he's thinking about their good attributes. The memory of them, he is refusing to allow it to be a bitter memory. And what's more, even if the Amalekite who brought the news to him was lying, even if he wasn't telling the truth that he actually is the one who killed Saul, David has him put to death. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed. So here we have a reminder that David was afraid and wouldn't. He refused. David had been in a position where he could have, and he didn't. Why? Because this was Yahweh's anointed. And what did David say? If God wants him removed, God can remove him. God is going to have to remove him. I will not remove him. I am not going to do that. Not because Saul in and of himself, humanly speaking, is this spectacular person, although David, even in Saul's passing, is speaking well of him and mourning him, delivering a eulogy, which is to say a good word. He's speaking well of the dead. But what was more important, the critical piece with not killing Saul when he had the chance, the critical piece was that he was the Lord's anointed, which is to say, whatever Saul's character, God's character is perfect. If God has not removed him, I'm not going to remove him either. And Saul is the anointed. Now, not everybody, by the way, not everybody who is a king or is said to be a king or tries to make themselves a king or starts telling people to call them a king, not everybody is referred to as the anointed. So that's significant that's an important thing to note. but what does that even mean though right What does it mean for someone to be anointed? Over at gotquestions.org we find this is a question that people ask what is the anointing? their answer the short version is that in the Bible anointing with oil is performed in religious ceremonies and used for grooming Ruth 3:3 Matthew 6:17. Refreshment, Luke 7.46, Medicinal Treatments, Luke 10.34, and Burial Traditions. Specifically, let's key in on the aspect that has to do with authority. Centuries before David's time, Yahweh, the Lord, had instructed Moses to consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. God authenticated their priestly ministry With the fiery glory of his presence that consumed their offerings, holy items, including the tabernacle itself, were also set apart or consecrated by anointing for use in worship and sacrificial ceremonies. The Bible contains a literal reference to a prophet's anointing when the Lord commanded Elijah to anoint Elisha as the prophet to succeed him. It also includes metaphorical references to anointing to indicate that prophets were empowered and protected by the Spirit of the Lord to perform their calling. Anointing the head with oil was also an ancient custom of hospitality shown to honored guests. In Psalm 23.5, King David pictures himself as an esteemed guest at the Lord's table. This practice of anointing a dinner guest with oil reappears in the Gospels. Luke 7.46, Mark 14.3-9, John 12.3. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ reveals himself as our anointed king, priest, and prophet. He is God's holy and chosen son, the Messiah. In fact, Messiah, which literally means anointed one, is derived from the Hebrew word for anointed. Christ, Greek Christos, means the anointed one. Jesus declared at the launch of his ministry, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, end quote. Going back to the third paragraph here, kings, priests, and prophets were anointed outwardly with oil to symbolize a more profound spiritual reality that God's presence was with them and his favor was upon them. While David was still a young shepherd, God told Samuel to anoint him to become king over Israel. From that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord rested powerfully upon David's life. Now, what's interesting, and this is puzzling to me, and I don't have this as clear in my mind. I don't understand it as much as I wish I did, honestly. What's confusing to me about Saul and David is, and not so much that David is anointed before he is actually king, he's anointed by Samuel, and the spirit of the Lord is with him. And so he has success as he goes from endeavor to endeavor. Although you might say, "Mm, how much was the Lord with him when (laughs) Saul was going after him the way that he was? That doesn't seem like a sign that David had the anointing or that the Lord was with David. No, you can't think like that. That the presence of God, God being with David, meant that David wasn't going to have difficulties. He wasn't going to have people who hated him. Look at Jesus, for instance. Jesus is God the Son. He definitely is the anointed. That's what it means, that he's the Christ. Jesus being the anointed doesn't mean that he's not hated, and it doesn't mean that there aren't people who want to kill him for exactly the good things that he's doing and the good things that he's saying. For actually very, very similar reasons, if not the exact same reasons that Saul wanted to kill David. But then, how is it that David still thinks of Saul as the anointed? The Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. God wasn't even answering Saul when Saul prayed. Saul would ask God a question or he would ask him for favor, and there was no response. Whereas before there had been a response, there was no response. And so a harmful spirit being sent to Saul and the spirit of the Lord leaving him, it would seem as though the anointing left him, but he still had been at one time, at least in the fullest sense, the anointed. And maybe that's what this is about. Maybe that's what David is getting at. It's very mysterious to me. It's very puzzling to me that Saul is right up until the moment of his death, king over Israel. But a significant amount of time before that, God had told him through Samuel that he was being rejected. He had been rejected. He was being rejected because he had rejected God. He had preferred his own way. He had given into fear of the people. It's a very curious thing that when David laments Saul and Jonathan, it's right after having ordered this son of a sojourner, an Amalekite, to be killed for having killed, for having destroyed Yahweh's anointed. It's a very curious thing, but it is what it is. There's so much in the Bible cover to cover that's like this, where you're not going to understand it perfectly. You're not going to know fully, even as you are fully known. And as I've said before, maybe it's been a minute since I said it, and I need to hear it as much as anybody else out there needs to hear it. If it were not so, would you actually be getting a benefit out of reading the Bible? If you already knew all of this, if it already conformed to everything you already think is true and good, then what would be the benefit of reading it in the first place? Just to be confirmed that you're a really good person who knows so much? What kind of benefit is that? If you want just to be flattered and to be told that all of your opinions, all of your Biases, all of your beliefs, all of your desires are good just the way that they are. They're perfect just the way that they are. Follow your heart. Go watch some Disney movies. If that's what you want, get a Disney Plus subscription and just veg out all day, every day on that because that's what Disney will tell you and that's what <laughs> generations of your peer group who've been raised on Disney will be happy to produce for you in the way of novels and magazine articles and special segments on their news channels and their talk shows. They'll all tell you exactly what you want to hear if they know what you want to hear, as long as that makes the money and keeps your eyeballs and your ears tickled and engaged. But if you actually know that what you've been thinking is not correct, And that can't be the way that it is. And that can't be true, what I've been thinking. That doesn't make sense anymore. If you know that what you've been doing and what other people around you have been doing is not always necessarily good, and you want to know what is good when a lot of trust has been lost in the sources you were going to, maybe even your own heart, just looking within yourself to know what was good, then the Bible can be of help to you. But only then can it be of help to you. Otherwise, you're a fool, and when corrected, you will hate and abuse the person who corrects you, or you'll hate and abuse the Bible because it corrects you. Or if you get really far down the road, and you're not just a fool who loves your folly, if you're wise in your own eyes, there really is no reasoning with you. (laughs) There's no teaching you anything. You're just like, yeah, I know. Okay. Yep. Let's get to the part where I get what I want. Okay. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. That's what impatience is. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for you. I don't have time to be instructed, taught, corrected. No, 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 no time for that. I'm great. I'm great. Let's just move on to the part where I get what I want. Okay. Yeah. You'll get what you think you want. You'll find out that you should have been one thing, correction. When you were incorrect, you should have been one thing, wisdom. You should have been wanting knowledge, but okay. If we're wise, we'll keep on going back to God's word, and we'll embrace the fact that we don't understand fully. We'll embrace the fact that we don't have all of the answers, but we know who does, and that actually is a very great comfort. But I want to talk about the friendship of David and Jonathan a little bit before we get into anything political, because I do have a few things to talk with you about with regards to politics. The Quest for Male Community by Aaron Wren, October 18th at AaronWren.com. His blog post here, he references King's College professor, Anthony Bradley, writing on X, an agreement with his write-up on evangelical Christian conceptions of servant leadership. Here's the quote from Anthony Bradley, and I quote, Aaron nailed it. I've been to lots of men's conferences and read dozens of books for Christian men. Masculinity's only expression for evangelical men is domestic. Even if things outside the home are mentioned, they're footnotes. For single young men, there is no on-ramp to live out 1 John 2.14 in their churches communities. So many look for it in video games, YouTube, etc. In fact, go to any evangelical youth group and ask the teenage boys what they want to do with their lives you're going to get something like this. Make enough money to provide for a family. What they want to do, however, is fight evil and do something heroic in the world. They want to be heroes. What do we give them instead? Small groups, a 6 a.m. Wednesday morning breakfast, 5.30 a.m. F3 groups, and an annual men's retreat. Then men are shamed for not being at home every night with their families. Then we mock them for not having friends. It's domestication, and they run from this. Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, Hamza, Sneeko, etc., offer young men something evangelicalism suppresses, how to use their power and strength outside of the four walls of their home to do something heroic that leaves their mark on the world. Again, I want to be clear here, even if the cultural mandate outside the home is taught for young men, it is neither modeled nor practiced in a community of men they can join and there is no rite of passage into it outside of the home culture shaping. They want to be brought into adversity and opposition in the fight against real evil and dominion over creation. This is exactly what Jesus offered his disciples. Jesus spoke directly to what young guys want. It's instructive. I'm so glad he didn't invite them to follow him to stay hot. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so glad he didn't invite them to follow him to stay at home, attend a 6 a.m. men's breakfast or workout group or a weekly small group, emphasis added. Aaron Wren follows this quote. If you don't know Bradley, his write-up on how evangelicalism is matrilineal is a must-read. He also has a recent book out on college fraternities. They are really great observations. I appreciate that he notes how men want a mission in the world But this is what evangelical teaching denies them as men. I believe the root cause of much of their bad teaching is in their unwillingness to advocate for substantive gender complementarity. They affirm that it exists, but never in any specifics. Thus, the only thing that distinguishes men and women is how they relate to the opposite sex. The main complementarian book, defines manhood and womanhood this way. As a result, masculinity and femininity can only be expressed in the domestic sphere. He is also right to talk about a community of men. I noted that pagan masculinist Jack Donovan was onto something when he talked about masculinity as being experienced and expressed as part of a group, in his view, a gang of other men. There used to be large numbers of spaces and organizations in the world that were single sex. Male-only spaces have been systematically targeted for elimination by feminists and elite culture for quite some time. The years-long jihad against Augusta National Golf Club by the New York Times is a great example. At the same time, there's a vast array of women's-only institutions and programs. Where I live, for example, there is a women-only co-working space. Now, legally, most of these women-only spaces can't really be limited to women-only. Unlike with women demanding to enter male spaces, men have traditionally respected a women's-only label. But this might be breaking down. There was a lot of press about how men have started attending a tech career fair that was supposed to be for women, and why wouldn't they? There are only a few all-male spaces left. College fraternities are one. But of course, there's a target on their back as well as well as other single-sex campus groups. Harvard has been working hard to punish any students who belong to single-sex organizations. For example, Bradley gets at something important, which is that men are hungry for community with other men. As I noted in my Wall Street Journal op-ed, this is one of the things that the online influencers offer. Their community is typically weak and online only, but it is part of the draw to these people. This comes through clearly in the famous 2005 book on the pickup artist community, The Game. If you read closely, what you see is that these guys are not really looking for sex with women as much as they are friendship with other men. Mystery, the main pickup artist character in the book, who later got a VH1 show out of it, has a dream of a house in California where they all live together and then go out looking for girls. They created their own version of a frat house. Now, Because the kind of people who try to have sex with lots of women aren't the best sort of people, their project collapsed in drama and betrayal, but it shows the desire they had. I noted in a previous newsletter that churches do have one advantage over other traditional institutions in that they do tend to have men speaking to and about other men. Another advantage they have is that they are one of the few places left where it is still acceptable to have an all-male group. Most churches have some type of men's groups. As Bradley says, however, these groups are a mixed bag. Some people really like and thrive in them, many others do not. I'm someone who personally has not gotten a lot out of men's groups at church and candidly attend them mostly out of a sense of obligation. Most of these groups do not have any form of greater external purpose. This is what I was referring to when I wrote in the journal Where they do have a male audience, such as in churches, attempts at creating community are often hokey and weird. Most young men aren't drawn to groups that ask them to hold each other accountable for watching porn. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Sorry to laugh. But he's right. (laughs) Right. It just is. That's yeah. I'll just say he's right. Uh, Accountability-type groups like AA can be beneficial to some people. At the same time, a lot of guys are looking for something more like a Marine platoon, a group of men on mission to accomplish some purpose in the world. As someone quoted Robert Nisbet of saying, quote, People do not come together in significant and lasting associations merely to be together. They come together to do something that cannot easily be done in individual isolation, end quote. The communities around Online influencers don't always have a huge external focus either. I would say community is the least important of the five factors that I noted, but some of them do have a real purpose in the world, such as right wing politics, or at a minimum, sticking it to the man. They are like a rebel alliance working to disrupt the globalist American empire. Nevertheless, this is one where I think churches can do well. They are socially allowed to have all male groups. These groups are working well for some people. I think they should build on to what they have with new forms of community that helps men engage in external mission in the world. Maybe they could create something more like a mastermind group. And as Bradley notes, they need to be careful of what they say in order to make clear that it is a good and proper use of men's time to spend time engaging with other men outside the home. And that is the entirety of this write-up from Aaron Wren. You can go to AaronWren.com to find more and to subscribe yourself And I would recommend that I've gotten a lot out of his posts and I have not subscribed. So Aaron Wren, sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) I only have so many people subscribing to me though, and lots more, many, many more who listen. So uh, now I empathize with those people, I guess. I enjoy your work, Aaron Wren. If you're listening, thank you for doing what you're doing. Keep on doing what you're doing, please, please. And thank you. But I bring this up. Again, as I said, what Aaron Rohn is writing here, the quest for male community, October 18th, in relation to the death of Jonathan, not just the death of King Saul, and not just the death of the king's son, that's not all Jonathan was. In David's lament, going back to 2 Samuel chapter 1, in David's lament, he's not just talking about how Jonathan was a skilled warrior, right? The mighty have fallen. Oh, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle, Jonathan was not just the mighty. Verse 26, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. So here we see David regards Jonathan as a brother. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now that right there leads some modern perverts who want to promote gender theory and they are liberal in their theology, and they want to twist and contort the word of God to affirm homosexuality and bisexuality and transgenderism and asexuality and all the rest. They want the Bible so badly to tell them that they're right in everything that they already think, and they're right in everything that they wanna do, and they're right to affirm other people for whatever they think and whatever they do, unless, of course, they object to the LGBTQ plus thing, in which case, hate those people, You're not allowed to hate anybody, but you're definitely allowed to hate the people who are like, "Mm, no, that's not right. That's not true. It says in the Bible, but this is not homosexuality that's being described. This is not romantic love. This is a deep and abiding brotherly affection as denoted by David referring to him as my brother, Jonathan, for him to say, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This is to say Something very similar to what is earlier described, that they loved one another as if they were their own soul. You're a part of my soul. And there is something different, right? It's not just that men are different physically from women. Men are different psychologically, as in our minds work differently, as in the brain chemistry is different, but then there's more to it than that. There's an essence to masculinity that is in every gene. It's in every part of our DNA different. The way that all of our genetic code is translated, every cell in our bodies is translated and expressed differently by virtue of the fact that we have an XY instead of an XX. And that's not to say that you hate women or you shouldn't ever trust women or you shouldn't ever love a woman. You should definitely, men, find a wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And if you have a wife, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Live with her in an understanding way. Be kind to her. Love her like Christ loves her. And that doesn't mean just rub her feet all day. Wash her feet all the time. Die for her if there's a bump in the night at 2 a.m. You're the guy, you know. you. (laughs) Congratulations, you're the guy who gets to go and die (laughs) when somebody breaks into the house so she can marry somebody else and... They can live off of the insurance money. No, no, no. That's not what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ taught as one with authority. He didn't just wash his disciples' feet. He did do that, but he didn't just do that. He didn't just feed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. He also had compassion and forgave sins. He also taught and commanded. The Great Commission doesn't make any sense. Apart from teaching these disciples that you make of all nations to observe, that is to obey, not just to know, but to do all that Christ commanded. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. When God saw that it wasn't good for the man to be alone, he made a help meet suitable for him. So he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Find it a woman of good character. Find a woman who loves the Lord, who fears the Lord. She's greatly to be praised. Find a woman who's going to love you and submit to you in all things as unto the Lord, because she loves the Lord and because she loves you and she respects you. But also, Aaron Wren is right. He's right about the male psyche. The male psyche is different to the core by God's design. And it's not all, oh, sinful nature, selfish ambition, vain conceit. It was not selfish ambition and vain conceit that God was calling the man and his wife to When he said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If the emphasis is only ever on you need to be home, you need to be there, you need to be present, you need to not be working too many hours. Well, how many is too many hours? Well, ask your wife, Ooh, wait, watch out. Careful. I think you've taken that to the hilt. And we need to walk it back a little bit. You need to moderate that. How much is too much for you to be working or for you to be externally focused, working outside the home? interested in what's going on in your community, what's going on in your country, how much is too much? Well, ask your kids. If your kids start to get upset that you're not going to be home tonight to play board games with them or watch a movie with them or read a book to them, that's how you know, oh, whoa, 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 too far, right? Too far. You might say that there can be a negligence on the part of some men, but I say with Aaron Wren, I agree with him, There's negligence on the part of the evangelical church when there's no priority, there's no emphasis on what are men doing on mission together with other men specifically that resembles Jesus calling the disciples to follow him. Follow implies you're going somewhere. You don't follow somebody who's just going to sit. Follow me as I just sit here very obediently, very passively, and listen. Let's all just talk about our feelings. You can't follow somebody who's not going somewhere. What's curious about David too, and I think this is part of the reason why David and Jonathan got along so well and they appreciated and valued one another so highly. It wasn't just that they were going somewhere. It was that the center of their mission in life personally coincided and was reinforcing one another's mission. As in... David was the kind of man to fight Goliath. Jonathan was the kind of man to say to his armor-bearer, if they call us up to him, this garrison of Philistines will know that God has given them into our hands. Both of those acts are explicitly predicated on God will give our enemy into our hands. We have an enemy who has come out against us. They are the aggressor. They've come out against Israel. We trust in the living God to give this enemy into our hands if it pleases him, and we hope and pray that it does, and we're watching, we're expectant that he will, and even if we stand alone or near enough, we trust that going with God is sufficient. If God has given them into our hands, then it doesn't matter how many there are, and it doesn't matter how big they are. They had that in common, which was quite a lot in common. And you think when the rest of the men, even the king himself, even Saul himself, again and again hung back, passively waited, were content to just wait and wait and wait and wait. And, and wait for what? Right? What are you waiting for? To find one other man who was willing to say, if they call us up, then we know that God has given them into our hands. To find one other man who said, God has given into my hands predators who came out against my father's sheep. He will give this uncircumcised Philistine into my hand as well. That was very precious to both of these men. It was very precious to Jonathan. And I understand why. It resonates with me. I get it. It was very precious to David. And I appreciate that. And a lot of men resonate with that. This kind of story is not emphasized in the evangelical church. In fact, I think that the mainstream evangelical church is terribly embarrassed of this kind of a story. They don't want to go there. The mainstream of evangelical Christianity today in America does not want to talk about this dynamic, even though this is exactly what women and children need. They need a man who loves the Lord who is on the lookout for other men who love the Lord and who are brave, who are courageous, who are proactive, who are protective, who are provisional, who fight when it is time to fight and they fight to win. And wouldn't you know it, they win because they fight to win. And wouldn't you know it, they're able to provide and they're able to protect the women and the children when they're that way. And wouldn't you know it, they are able to control themselves, and they are able to master themselves, if not all the time, near enough when they have a direction, when they have a purpose, when they have other men affirming that as well. And you don't just break it up. Break it up, guys. All right, nothing to see here. Come on. Let's let's go back to looking forward to the one time a year, maybe the one weekend a year, where we're going to get away just us and even call it a retreat. You know what I don't like? I don't like it being called a retreat. Consistently, (laughs) I, I don't like that. Why is it a retreat? Why is it, say for instance, for homeschoolers, they have conferences, you know, pastors, sometimes they'll call it a retreat, but they'll call it, you know, say for instance, the Shepherd's Conference. Not that I would go to Shepherd's Conference, but they call it Shepherd's Conference. They have conventions. Why do we call these get-togethers for men, usually out in the woods, out in the wilderness. Why do we call them retreats? Hmm? Not the best sales pitch. That's not really the buzzword you should have used, I think. Retreat is to say, we're losing. We're losing, fall back, let the enemy take the field, let the enemy pursue us. Retreat's a bad word for it. Why are we not advancing all the time? Here, I'll play for you. Before we move into some political discussion, political analysis, I'll play for you just a little selection from the excellent, amalgamated Patton speech from the film starring George C. Scott, where he plays George S. Patton. I'll play for you just a little bit where Patton talks about, are we retreating? Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen.
1: Some of you boys I know are wondering whether or not you'll chicken out under fire. Don't worry about it. I can assure you that you will all do your duty. The Nazis are the enemy. Wade into them. Spill their blood. Shoot them in the belly. When you put your hand into a bunch of goo that a moment before was your best friend's face, you know what to do. Now, there's another thing I want you to remember. I don't want to get any messages saying that we are holding our position. We're not holding anything. Let the Hun do that. We are advancing constantly, and we're not interested in holding on to anything except the enemy. We're going to hold on to him by the nose, and we're gonna kick him in the ass. We're gonna kick the hell out of him all the time, and we're gonna go through him like crap through a goose. Now, there's one thing that you men will be able to say when you get back home, and you may thank God for it. 30 years from now, when you're sitting around your fireside with your grandson on your knee, and he asks you, what did you do in the great World War II, you won't have to say, Well, I shoveled shit in Louisiana. All right, now you sons of bitches, you know how I feel.
0: Now, that played. Excellent movie that it is. Excellent speech that it is. Here's the point. What is so rousing in the male psyche? It's not toxic masculinity. And it's not, what's the matter with men that they like violence. Oh, they love violence and they love this kind of stuff. And oh, we shouldn't be using those words. What's rousing is not the transgressive nature of war and glorying in violence. And it's not the profanity. It's we men are going together to fulfill this objective, this important objective of fighting the enemy. We have a clear Defined enemy. We have a clear objective. Defeat the enemy. How are we going to do it? We're going to, easy. We're going to advance on their positions. We're going to let them die for their country. No poor dumb bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. No, make the other guy. Make the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. We're going to win. We're going to fight, and we're going to fight to win. And then he talks about at the tail end there, Thinking forward to when you're old and gray and you're looking back, not having a regret that you ducked out, you chickened out, you were shoveling manure while other men were off fighting for their country. Think forward to old you, looking back and knowing that you did your duty, you did what you were supposed to do, you did the honorable thing, you fought to defend the Your country. You fought against an evil enemy bent on destruction. You fought to preserve what had been built up. So there's a provisional aspect here. You're going to preserve what has already been provided and what has been passed down and what has been handed down. But you're going to fight also to protect the innocent. That is a rousing and comprehensive call to action for men. That resonates with. What is distinct and what is particular to men. You know, last night, and again, this will be the last thing before we talk about political analysis, but then we are talking about the political analysis. This pertains to our political situation. This is why the political situation is what it is. Last night, I went to a meeting for the parents and the coaches for the sports programs that are about to start up a new round of teams and leagues. Games, practices, training, going to other schools, other schools coming to our school here that the kids, whether they attend that school or they are homeschooled and they just participate in the program, it's their school after a fashion. Either way, it's going to be their team either way. But Dayspring Academy, Dayspring Christian Academy here in Greeley, Colorado, I went to the parents meeting Where the academic director gave a presentation on here is the expectation. Here's what we expect for your child to participate in the sports program. They have to get their classes taken care of. They have to attend to their studies. They have to be passing their classes. They have to have a certain grade point average. If they don't, then they won't be allowed to play. They won't be allowed to participate. They can practice. They can keep themselves fresh, but they can't play and they can't even be on the bench. They can come to the game, but they can't ride on the bus. You parents, you let us know if they need to sit out because they're not attending to their responsibilities outside of sports. We want you to let us know. If your kid is concussed, we need you to be watching for signs and letting us know so that we protect these kids from being concussed. We expect ourselves and our players to dress in a way that is respectful and respectable and dignified. We expect you to read this code of conduct and to be virtuous as you represent our team and as we all alike represent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. After that, after the academic director laid that out for all of the parents and the coaches and those students who were present, and many were, but not all, Each of the coaches was introduced. Here is the head coach for basketball and for volleyball for, oh, by the way, boys, girls. Interesting that here's the boys wrestling team, the high school boys wrestling team, the girls volleyball team, the girls basketball team, the boys basketball team. Here are the head coaches. Here are their names. Here are their faces standing up before you and in just a moment this one's going to go over there, this one's going to go over here, this one's going to be in that part of the gymnasium. And you parents can go to whichever place these head coaches are going to be, and they'll tell you more about what to expect this year for your child, your student, who's going to be playing on their team. And so I went, right? I was there because my oldest son is going to be wrestling. And none of us have ever wrestled on my side of the family, on my wife's side of the family. It's just not a sport we've Taken up ever that I know of. But my son got encouragement from who? From young men his age who wrestle, who've wrestled from little on up. Hey, you're pretty strong. I bet you would do well with wrestling. Why don't you come out for wrestling? My son came back from DTC, Discipleship Training Camp, this year, excited because he had been recognized by another young man as being strong and somebody who would benefit and would be beneficial to wrestling. So he signed up and here are all these young men who wrestle and have been wrestling. And I met the coaches and we talked and it was great. And I thought to myself, as it was being explained, that these young men are going to work hard. They're going to condition themselves. They're going to exercise. They're going to train. They're going to rest well. They're going to get themselves hydrated and stay hydrated. They're going to eat right. They're going to learn techniques. They're going to practice. They're going to throw themselves into it, and they're going to be exhausted. But at the end of this year, they're going to be much better wrestlers than they were if they were wrestlers at all at the beginning. They're going to know how to wrestle. If they didn't know how to wrestle, they're going to cover 3,000 miles traveling to and from wrestling meets and tournaments. They're going to go other places, and they're going to wrestle, and it's just going to be them and some other young man Squaring off to test their strength, test their skill, to encourage each other, to help one another to get stronger, to get more skilled, to be more confident, to be more aggressive when aggression is what's needed, to keep trying when you're tired and when maybe you're a little distracted or the other guy you're wrestling against has gotten in your head. All of that is still very much in this same vein with what we were just talking about with Aaron Wren's piece, The Quest for Male Community. Very much of a piece with this question of how men relate to one another in friendship and why. Why is it a good thing? Why, if men need, in order to be recognized as manly, as virtuous, as worthy of listening to, of being employed or elected or heeded or allowed to participate in the public discourse and the process of making decisions together. Why is male community so important to the end of being able to fight and win when it's time to fight? Being able to provide and protect, being able to control oneself and master oneself and pursue excellence. Why is this all so important? It's important because A man in and of himself is not created to be alone. And it's not enough to say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's not. Not when you have a determined enemy, for instance, you don't want to, if you can help it, go into battle all alone, particularly if not just on the other side, not just on the enemy side, you're going to have people wanting to remove you. Even on your own side, if you pursue excellence and you are really excellent, you're going to have people on your own side in some cases, like in David's case, who feel threatened and who want to remove you. You need friends, somebody to watch your six, to keep an eye out, to help you up when you fall, to give you a heads up when trouble is coming, to help you in a time of trouble or discouragement or what have you. You need that men. And if you're not a man, if you're listening, if you're one of the women, one of the females (laughs) who uh, listen, according to Spotify for Podcasters Analytics, who listen to my podcast, I think about a quarter here lately of my audience is female. If you're one of the women listening, know that the men in your life do need good friendships. They need good friends, not just any friends will do, but they need friends who are going to be Encouraging the good and the true and the beautiful as an aspirational model, as something to value, as something to protect, as something to pursue. For the men in your lives, they need good friends. And those good friends need to not be the kind of friends either who are like, hey, let's get into trouble, you know, doing things that break God's commandments, for instance, for example. They need to not be that kind of a friend, but they also need to not be the kind of a friend who says, hey, let's just do nothing, right? Well, no, 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 no. Doing nothing, that's not obedient either. Actively breaking commands, not so good, but then the preference should not be so that we don't do the actively getting into trouble, breaking God's commandments, being wicked thing. Now we're going to do the exact opposite, which is perceived to be just do nothing, right? You can't make mistakes if you just do nothing all the time. And who can fault you? Who, who can blame you if you're just waiting hand and foot on everybody else, just giving everybody else what they want all the time? No. Those kinds of friends are actually not being good friends. If a good friend is going to tell you to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 29, what does God say through Jeremiah to the exiles? Going into exile, the men in particular, are the audience. God says to the men who are going into exile in Babylon, build houses, that's active. Take wives, that's active. Have sons and daughters, plant gardens and vineyards, that's active. But then what? He doesn't stop there. God does not stop there when he gives the admonition to the men going into exile in Babylon, of all places. God says, seek the welfare of the city. That means you're going to have to go out into the city. You're going to have to know what's going on in the city. You roll up your sleeves and you pay attention and you listen and you watch and you engage. You can't seek the welfare of the city if all you ever do is just stay home and watch movies and read books and rub your wife's feet and wait for a burglar to break in so that you can go <laughs> and die. <laughs> no, you know, that in a case where the man, Steps in and he's being heroic and he is protective and he loses his life. We should commend that man, but we should also, even all the more, if we hear about something like that, we should encourage the men to get after it, augment their strength, eat right, exercise, develop some martial skills that allow you to defend and not die. Just like Patton says no poor dumb bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. You win wars by, to paraphrase, making the other poor dumb bastard die for his. So the analogy in this case shouldn't be, hey, if there's a bump in the night, you go and answer the door and you die. It should be, if there's somebody who's trying to harm your family, you fight that person and you fight to win. The goal is not to go and die. You might risk your life. Yes, you have to be willing to risk your life. But the goal is not to die. The goal is to fight and to win and to protect your family. And that means you've got to be capable of deploying deadly force to neutralize a hostile adversary, a hostile intruder. You need men around you, men, women, the men in your life need men around them who are going to recognize that. They're going to affirm that. They're going to encourage that. They're going to spur that on. They're going to stir it up and they're going to look for ways to encourage it because that's where actually the courage is needed. Courage is not needed to just stay home and do nothing and watch as the world goes to hell in a handbasket. You don't need courage for that. You do need courage if you're going to be proactive and you're going to engage. Moving on though, I said I would talk about some political things, some political analysis, current events, what's the latest, particularly as we go into 2024, which will be a presidential election year here in the U.S. Justin Haskins has an opinion piece at The Blaze published October 27th. This is Bidenomics in a nutshell. New data shows that corporations under Joe Biden's administration have become richer while families have burned through their savings. Americans, he writes, are a little more than a year away from the 2024 presidential election, and surveys show that the economy will likely be one of voters' top concerns. That could prove to be disastrous for Joe Biden. Several polls now suggest that voters have a low opinion of the president's economic performance. One recent NBC poll, for example, found that 5.9% of registered voters said they disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy. Wait, wait, wait. No, no. I'm sorry, did I say 5.9? I meant to say 59. 59% of registered voters disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy. Though several reasons could explain voters' economic discontent, the latest data about the U.S. money supply, corporate wealth, and household savings tells the whole sad story. Under the Biden administration, the government has continued to pump unprecedented amounts of money into the economy, but those policies appear to have disproportionately benefited large corporations, which are hoarding trillions in cash and investments while American families burn through their savings. Data compiled by Investors Business Daily shows that businesses in the S&P 500 are holding $2.6 trillion in cash, a 20% increase compared to cash held by the same group, at the end of 2019, so pre pandemic, Apple alone has about $167 billion in investments and savings. Much of that cash was amassed by large businesses in 2020, as the Democrat led Congress and President Trump agreed to print trillions in new dollars to fund lockdown related relief packages and costly stimulus policies. Since Biden entered the White House in January 2021, large corporations have continued to remain flush with cash. In fact, cash holdings for big businesses are about the same today as they were at the end of 2020, which means they have managed to thrive despite the recent surge in inflation. Meanwhile, working-class, middle-income, and lower-income families have experienced real loss. American households experienced across the board increases in their checking and savings balances in 2020, according to Federal Reserve data. At the start of 2022, real household savings for middle-income Americans was 113% of what those balances had been in March 2020, when the most significant coronavirus lockdowns began. Now, on its face, that might look like a positive trend, but the reason corporations and families experienced huge increases in cash holdings wasn't due to economic growth. Remember, much of the economy remained closed in 2020 and 2021. The increase in cash was directly related to sharp increases in the money supply, which grew by more than $3.37 trillion from March 2020 to January 2021, by far the most rapid increase in money supply in U.S. history, rather than decrease the money supply or even hold the supply levels flat the Biden administration and congressional Democrats opted to keep spending levels high, adding another $2.19 trillion to the money supply in 2021 alone. Making matters worse, the Federal Reserve encouraged the government's spending addiction and kept interest rates low, despite troubling signs. Democrats' reckless spending, coupled with the war in Ukraine, Biden's attacks on affordable energy and low interest rates, fueled an inflation crisis, That has been unlike anything Americans have experienced in four decades. As a result, a family purchasing $200 worth of groceries in 2020 would spend more than $238 today for the same products, based on the federal government's consumer price index calculations, which likely undercount inflation. In a frantic effort to stop prices from skyrocketing further, The Federal Reserve increased interest rates at breakneck speed in 2022 and 2023. Despite this dramatic reversal in monetary policy, prices have continued to go up. The Biden administration claims its policies have provided relief to the middle and working classes, but the evidence suggests that its addiction to debt and government spending has disproportionately hurt households, especially middle-income families. Although large corporations have maintained or even increased their high levels of cash, and big investments, even when you factor in the cost of inflation, most households have less cash on hand in real terms than they did when the pandemic started. The most recent data from the Federal Reserve shows that in September 2023, real cash savings for the bottom 40% of earners was 92.4% of what it had been in March 2020. Middle-income earners had 98.6% of their March 2020 balances, and all indications are these figures are likely to get substantially worse over the next year. Only the top 20% of earners have maintained the savings they gained in 2020 and 2021, but their cash has been rapidly depleting and is now on track to dip below March 2020 savings early in 2020. These figures are supported by other data showing that households are struggling to pay their bills. For example, a U.S. Census Bureau survey ending in early August found that 27.27 million Americans say they sometimes or often do not have enough to eat, an increase of 3.52 million since January 2021. Perhaps the one bright spot for families in the Biden era has been that the value of homes is still well above 2020 prices, although prices have declined by more than 50,000 since the end of 2022. But even this positive news is limited to people who already owned homes in 2020 or bought in at the start of 2021. Families looking for homes for the first time today are seeing some of the costliest mortgages in decades due to the combination of high prices and relatively high interest rates. Many big corporations and some wealthy earners are still better off today than they were at the start of 2021, but everyone else is worse off, and some groups are barely getting by. This is what Bidenomics really looks like. Skipping on over to the link, however, that was in the Blaze article that I just read for you from Justin Haskins. That takes me to NBC News and... Some reporting by Mark Murray, Bianca Seward, and Alec Hernandez. Poll. Overwhelming majorities express concerns about Biden, Trump, ahead of 2024 race. We won't spend a lot of time on this. It has been said recently, actually at our last Ecclesia Forum this past Sunday, that you probably shouldn't trust polls. Don't put too much stock in polls. Polls are notorious for being inaccurate and not reflecting how people are actually going to vote when it comes right down to it. People will lie to pollsters, for instance, and tell them what they think the pollster wants to hear. The phrasing of the questions can be very manipulative and it can solicit the kind of a response that you want to get from the people you're polling. For that matter too, pollsters can select people to poll who are going to answer the way that they want them to answer. And they can exclude people consciously or unconsciously. They don't want to factor into their considerations. And besides that, people can change their mind. So a poll today does not necessarily mean that after the poll has conducted, even five minutes after, after the person has had some time to think about the questions that were asked and mull it over a little bit more, maybe they regretted their answers, they can change their mind In 10 minutes, 15 minutes. The poll is what it is. Now, that said, this poll in particular being referenced by the reporting at NBC News, I'll highlight for you what they highlight, which is the question, does each statement give you major concerns, moderate concerns, minor concerns, or no real concerns about the candidate? Here are some of the statements. At 80 years old, Joe Biden not having the necessary mental and physical health to be president for a second term. 59% reported that that was a major concern for them. 15% said that was a moderate concern. 12% said it was a minor concern. Only 14% said that that was no real concern. 60% nearly said major. 74% said it was either a moderate or a major concern for them. Those are pretty big numbers. How about this one? Donald Trump facing four different criminal and civil trials for alleged wrongdoing, including multiple felony charges related to attempts to overturn the 2020 election. 52%, so less, reported that that was a major concern for them. Now, we say that, but then the statement can be taken a few different ways, as these kinds of statements often can be. Donald Trump facing four different criminal and civil trials Is that a major concern because you're concerned about his fitness for office, or is that a major concern because, for crying out loud, this looks like Banana Republic politically motivated targeting of the other party's leading candidate? It's hard to say exactly what's going through people's minds when all you get is a percentage or a graph. Only 10% said that that was a moderate concern. 9% said it was a minor concern. Interestingly, 28% said it was no real concern at all. They weren't at all concerned about Trump facing four criminal and civil trials. So it's actually pretty well split. It's pretty well split. And even that 52% could be misleading, depending on are people concerned majorly about Donald Trump, or are they majorly concerned about these judges and the justice system? For the next statement, Joe Biden's possible awareness or involvement in the business dealings of his son, Hunter Biden, including financial wrongdoing and corruption. 45% reported that that was a major concern. 15% said it was a moderate concern. 14% said it was a minor concern. 25% said no real concern there. I would say it's a major concern and it bothers me. It bothers me the way this is phrased and how we should know better at this point It bothers me that more of us, more of those polled anyway, would not be in the major concern category. Possible awareness or involvement in, if you think there's no there there, maybe that's why you're not majorly concerned. But combined, about 60% say it's either a moderate or it's a major concern. Lastly, at 77 years old, Donald Trump not having the necessary mental and physical health to be president for a second term. 34% said that was a major concern. 13% said it was a moderate concern. I'll say this. He is older, but he is obviously in a lot better shape than Joe Biden at 80. And 34% saying that's a major concern. That's way less, way, way less than 59% for Joe Biden with a very similar question. But notice, just like I was saying, the phrasing of the question, huh. At 80 years old, Joe Biden not having the necessary mental and physical health to be president for a second term. At 77 years old, Donald Trump not having the necessary mental and physical health to be president for a second term. Exact same wording. That's good. But what suggests that Donald Trump doesn't have the necessary mental and physical health? This question would seem to be hinging on the fact of Trump's age, but I don't see any evidence that he's slipping. If you don't like his politics, if you don't like his way of relating, if you're actually concerned about these criminal and civil trials, that they are substantive, that he is guilty of unethical practices and dirty dealings, defrauding people, slandering people. If you are majorly concerned about that, that's a side question too. Is he physically fit? Is he mentally fit? There's a lot of evidence In fact, pretty much every time Joe Biden is seen or heard, you get evidence that he is not physically or mentally healthy enough to be president. He's not up for the job. So asking the question with regards to both, I can see reasons for it. That's fine. But it is worth noting that 39% with regards to Trump say it's no concern at all. No real concern at all with regards to him compared to 14% who said for Biden, no real concern there. I would say that the reasons people would answer, no real concern for these two men are going to be very different. It's no real concern with Biden because the folks who are going to vote for him anyways are figuring, yeah, other people are handling the business anyways. So who cares, right? Who cares if he is physically and mentally fit for the job? He's really more of a figurehead anyways. And at least he's not Donald Trump with Trump, 39%, almost 40, saying, no, no real concern. I think their reasons are because it's a non-factor. There's no evidence that we've seen that he is slipping. He is a dementiatic. He is shambling around. None of that. For our next story, Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee reports November 6th, just yesterday, I never thought New York Times poll results would be called an alarming, re-election-threatening, full-blown crisis for Joe Biden. But here we are. Check out how much hurt is coming the man's way. Axios here sharing a link that is highlighted, embedded in Harris Rigby's post. And here's the write-up to X. If the election were held today, former President Donald Trump would easily beat President Joe Biden with over 300 electoral votes according to a new swing state poll from the New York Times and Siena College. The poll shows Trump leading Biden in five of six swing states, all of which Biden won in 2020. Now, what was I just saying? Don't trust the polls. Don't trust the polls. If the polls show Trump winning in a landslide, that's one thing. I mean, if it's a huge percentage difference. That's one thing. But keep in mind, we're a year out. I think the kind of fraud we should be most concerned about between now and the 2024 election, next November, a year from now, the kind of fraud we should be most concerned about is not the kind where people fudge the numbers and throw out ballots for your guy and make up fake ballots for their guy. No, I think the kind of fraud we should be most concerned about is in the way that the news is covered, in the way that the justice system goes after Trump, say, for instance, with those civil and criminal cases. Also, besides that, social media. How is social media skewing the sentiment? Not persuading people, but after a fashion, brainwashing people, manipulating people. These things, no, you can't post them. These things, no, you can't say them. Oh, okay, so as long as you don't consider any of the evidence against Biden or you don't consider any of the evidence that would exonerate Trump, Biden is the pick. Got it. (laughs) You know, and that's how it works, right? That's what it is. Social media is biased in favor of the Democrat agenda and progressivism. The corporate news media is consistently, by and large, almost all of the outlets in favor of the Democrat agenda, the progressive agenda, and hostile towards Donald Trump. So what will they say? What will they do? How will they cover things? How will they not cover certain things? How will they allow common people like you and me to communicate with one another in the public square? And how will they work to suppress our speaking with one another, our communicating with each other in subtle ways? if they can't persuade you but they still want what they want and they still are just sure that this is what's best for everybody you'll see they're the experts trust the science if they are able to have a free hand silencing all discussion all debate then i think that will be the greatest of all possible frauds and the most dangerous because that that tendency doesn't just go away if trump all of a sudden drops out. He says, you know what, I'm done with this. Or let's say 2024 comes and goes, and the next time around we've got somebody else who doesn't have all of the baggage that Trump does. Admittedly, he does. He knows it. We know it. Everybody knows it. If the tendency is still there, if the incentive structure is you just manipulate people, you just silence them whenever they're saying something you don't want to hear or you don't want other people to hear, you just destroy their credibility, you limit their reach to practically nothing. If that tendency is still there, then we will never have free and fair elections again, and we won't have free speech, and we won't have any other freedom, really, because the same folks who want to censor according to their morality, their new definitions of right and wrong, they don't really think you have most of the rights that you, if you're a conservative American, think you have. And for that matter, They think insofar as you would agree with them that you have certain responsibilities, they can do it better. And so you really don't even have the right per se to meet your responsibilities because where they would say, yes, you do have that responsibility, they would then say, now give us all of the means, give us your capacity to meet your responsibilities, and then we'll tell you what you can do with your capacity and what you can't. We'll tax, and maybe we'll just do it for you or we'll have somebody else do it for you because we know better. And it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be as a country. Not whether we vote Trump or Biden. If you're unhappy, lots of people are unhappy that it looks like it's probably going to be a face-off again between Trump and Biden. If you're unhappy about that, it is what it is. It is what it is. Embrace that that might just be the situation. There is no good alternative for the Democrats. And by a good alternative, I mean somebody that would bring the party together. Biden doesn't really, but then he's the best they've gotten, so they do. And so they're just going to maintain unit cohesion. But Trump, he is far and away ahead of the rest of the candidates who want the Republican nomination. And so it's probably going to be him, unless there's some funny business to do with the 14th Amendment. Yeah, No, you can't. But that's not likely, in my view. It seems as though if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is going to say, no, no, he stays. He stays on the ballot. But if the inclination then is, well, now we just have to lean even harder into the censorship game, we have to lean even harder into the unfavorable coverage of anybody criticizing or cross-examining our policies, our vision of the good life, our five-year plan, if they just lean even harder into their nudge theory tactics and their community organizing, we have to have some idea of what to do instead, how to counter that. If we're not thinking right now about how to counter that, then we're not ready. If we haven't been working on it to this point and we're not prepared to join somebody else, help somebody else, work together with somebody else who has been thinking about it and has been working on it, then we're not ready. Because that's probably, in my view, that's probably how this is going to play out. It's going to be Trump and Biden for all the reasons that polling is looking like Trump would win in a landslide, even according to the New York Times, which is saying something. They have a year to go and they will pull out all the stops. I'm convinced that COVID was as bad as it was for the economy and for society because the Democrats, in the words of Rahm Emanuel, never want to let a good crisis go to waste. They leaned into it. They made the most of it to bypass safeties here and there and confuse quite a lot of people with the noise and the chaos and the fear, really. It was a major departure from the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And it really was, no, be afraid. Be very afraid. The only thing that can save you now is the government. Oh, and you, wait, you don't agree? You don't agree? Well, we'll just see about that. We'll destroy you. And let you be an example to everybody else. And so, oh, by the way, that's another thing we have to brace ourselves for going into 2024 is we've got to brace ourselves for a return to some of the debates about how Christians, in particular, should relate to those in authority if those in authority behave badly. Let me implore you, go to God's Word and spend more time in God's Word Give more weight to what you find in God's word than you do to the latest article or book or sermon from a celebrity pastor or Christian celebrity who's in some other capacity. Put more weight into what you find in the way of political theology in scripture. Really meditate on, really study out the situation between Saul and David. For instance, look at... The case of these Hebrew youths in the book of Daniel and how they related to those in authority. It's not just do whatever and say, hey, I'm a free man. Only God can tell me what to do. Only God can judge me. No, that's not biblical. That's not good political theology. But neither is it good political theology to say, whatever a person who claims to have authority over me tells me to do, that's what I have to do. I can't question it, I can't cross examine it, I can't disagree. I can't ever say no. That is not good political theology. It's not. That's not seeking the welfare of the city, like God told the men going into exile in Babylon to do. It's not good political theology. If you were to apply that kind of thinking to David, for instance, when he knows that Saul wants to kill him, what would he have done with that kind of thinking? He would have just turned himself in. And if Saul put him to death, well, then so be it. He was going to trust in God. No, he trusted in God and made himself scarce, and he went into hiding. He became an outlaw, so to speak, after a fashion, although he hadn't broken any laws. He became a fugitive on the run. And oh, by the way, hundreds of other men flocked to him and saw him as a symbol of what they at least felt they had suffered as well unjustly under Saul's reign. And it wasn't all bad, but it definitely wasn't all good. David, for his part, is exemplary in a number of ways. One, he does not kill Saul when he has the chance. I think that is exemplary. But then what does it mean that Saul is literally the anointed? Is every person who has authority God's anointed? Surely not. Just because every authority that exists among men is instituted by God, that doesn't mean that every person who has authority is therefore the Lord's anointed. So you have to be careful that you don't go too far with how David relates to Saul. But then even when literally Saul is the Lord's anointed, he is the king, that does not mean that David just turns himself in. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have something to say in front of everybody about how Saul has sinned against David it is possible for those in authority to sin against those they wield authority over. Why? Because the person with the authority, humanly speaking, doesn't suddenly supersede all of God's laws and commands. God's righteous standard is still applicable, and we need to know God's righteous standard, and we need to meditate on it day and night, and we need to be able to articulate it, even yes to those in authority when they say we want to Do this thing, and we have the power, we have the ability to do it, so we're going to do it. We think it's best. We have to be able to, if the Lord puts us in a position to be able to do so, call, yes, even those in positions of authority to repent, to turn from their sins, and to warn them. The consequences, if you won't, are the vengeance of the Lord. God says, don't avenge yourself. But what? Leave it to the wrath of God. But that is to say, that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But then that is to say, vengeance is his. If you stop short, then you won't warn somebody because they have nothing to be afraid of. They have nothing to expect that would be concerning. If we would pray for those in positions of authority, that we might all live quiet lives in peace, that is good. That is well, that's biblical, that's obedient, that's faithful, that's a good testimony. It's wise if we would also warn them. Well, it's not either or. That too is biblical. That too is honorable. That too is obedient and faithful in following the pattern that we find in Scripture. For one last item, I suppose, to wrap up from allsides.com, their headline roundup, November 6th, just yesterday. Trump leads Biden in several key battleground states new poll shows. From the All Sides News team, former President Donald Trump leads President Joe Biden in several key battleground states new polling shows. Trump enjoys a significant lead in Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia, and narrower ones in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. All five states were won by Joe Biden in 2020. Voters said they trust Trump more on matters like the economy, immigration, national security, and the Israel-Hamas conflict while trusting Biden more with abortion. Very unfortunate there. I don't like that at all, at all, at all. For context, the polling was conducted by the New York Times, Lean Left Bias, and Siena College. It found 59% of voters strongly or somewhat disapprove of Biden, and 67% believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. Economic issues ranked the highest importance for voters at 57%, while 49% of voters said there's hardly any chance they support Biden. 46% said the same of Trump. Trump polled higher in rural areas, 60%, than Biden in urban ones, 53%, and higher in urban areas, 38%, than Biden did in rural ones, 32%. Key quote, Biden campaign spokesperson Kevin Munoz said, Predictions more than a year out tend to look a little different a year later. We'll win in 2024 by putting our heads down and doing the work, not by fretting about a poll. Here were the featured coverage news items, articles from the left, from the center, from the right. From CNN, Trump leads Biden in four key swing states, new polling finds. From the center, warning signs for Democrats as America appears to be heading for close presidential rematch. From the right, Trump ahead in five swing states. Voters resent Biden policy's poll. That from the National Review, the center selection being from Financial Times. Again, as I said before, don't put too much stock in polls. If they're telling you what you want to hear, don't get too excited. If they're telling you something that really concerns you, don't freak out. One thing, we all, or many of us, anyways, most of us who are paying attention seem to agree on, the country is headed in the wrong direction. That much two-thirds of us can agree on. And that is to say, Republicans and Democrats have to be represented in that. The country is headed in the wrong direction. What corrects the direction that we're going in? Is it going back to Trump? Is it four more years of Joe Biden, man alive. You can hardly imagine it being four more years of Joe Biden. But if the choice is between these two, I would agree with Ben Shapiro that the trick for each guy, each of these two, is going to be to make it a referendum on the other. Biden will say, no means no. Tell Trump with your vote that no means no. You voted against him and for me in 2020 do it again because he didn't get the memo. Trump is going to say, all right, four years of Biden, I warned you, everything I warned you was going to happen, has happened and is happening. We can't survive another four years of Joe Biden. You want me back in the White House. You want me to be your president again. Remember how good it was before Joe Biden. And that will probably be our choice. But then we have other choices to make. Say, for instance, as I was just alluding to, how we maintain our own equilibrium. Let's go back to really summarize, to really wrap up. Let's go back to the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Saul is dead. That's the end of the reign of Saul and his sons who were with him. David here gets the news and he laments because it's a sad day for Israel that Saul is dead. Whether you loved him or you hated him, It's a sad day for Israel. And David, rightly so, laments. It's appropriate to be sad about where we're at here in America right now. That's appropriate. Don't give yourself over to that sadness or to the supposition that the sadness is forever. There's a good God in heaven who has not died, nor does he sleep. And that good God who rules and reigns over the affairs of men, he will see that it goes well with the righteous as he always has. So put your trust in God. If you're a man, I would recommend seek out friendship with men who are going to encourage you to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, and to do that actively. And not just to do that in a passive way. It's become too typical that we do it in a passive way and we navel gaze. And that is not what God calls us to. That's not what God created us for. And we know that. If the Lord puts it on your heart, I would say, come out to our Ecclesia Forum here in Greeley, the second Sunday night of every month, and let's talk about how to seek the welfare of the city to which the Lord our God has brought us in our exile. If, as Christians, we are like exiles, then we can think of ourselves as being in the world, yes, not of the world, but in the world, and we can know that it's consistent with the character of God, that we would actively seek the welfare of the city. We have to know what's going on in the city to seek the welfare of the city. But we would probably do that better if we get together with others who likewise want to seek the welfare of the city and figure out what's the situation and what can we do about it. How can we make better decisions together moving forward? If you don't live in this area and you can't make it to our Ecclesia Forum, get something like this started in your area. And if you want some help figuring out how to do that, reach out to me. I'll be happy to provide advice. I can tell you what we've done. I can explain. I can answer questions. I'd be happy to do that. But we need this sort of a thing. Men in particular, especially men. Yes, I said, especially men. For all the reasons that Aaron Wren got into in his post about the quest for male community. Men were made to lead. Men were made to lead in their homes and in their communities and in their churches. Lead by example? Yes, but that means you are actively doing. You are actively providing and protecting, fighting when it's time to fight, winning, or at least doing your best to win when you fight, if you have to fight, but maintaining self-control and gathering men around you who are going to help you to do that in a proactive way, to be your best. That's why we are hosting this Ecclesia Forum on a monthly basis. That's why I'm podcasting. I'm going to keep on podcasting. You keep on coming back. We'll keep on talking about everything. But for now, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.